Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategy is built to help make strategy work for small to medium-sized companies by designing world-class strategic plans and help keeping them accountable to get it done. Go to 40strategy.com to learn more. I am really excited about our guest today because being in strategy, there is just a special circle of people that we have when other people are in strategy as well. And that guest we have here today is Eric Wood. Eric Wood is the CEO of X-Plane, a global design consultancy that serves Fortune 500 businesses and global organizations to clarify, communicate, and activate their strategies and drive change ultimately in their organizations. He's a keynote speaker of design, business, and change management events, and has appeared in publications in Forbes, CNN, Business Week, Inc. Magazine. He is clearly a global leader, and he has most recently come out with an amazing book. That's what actually drove my attention in particular to Eric, The Strategy Activation Playbook, A Practical Approach to Bringing Strategies to Life. Eric, welcome to the Measure Success Podcast. Well, Carl, thank you. I'm really, really excited to be here and uh, excited to have a conversation with you and with your audience. Yeah, it's fun, as I said, to meet somebody who's locally. We're both in the Portland area, and um, I, you know, often we're talking to people throughout the world. It's like, oh, no, we, we should have just done this over coffee. But, um, you know, frankly, Zoom is a little bit easier, frankly, to make the recording and things how get work. So, Eric, tell us a little bit more about your business, X-Plane. Absolutely. Uh, so Explain is a, we call it a design consultancy. We're really a hybrid of a, a management consulting firm and a design firm. And what I mean by that is we're working with our clients oftentimes to help them develop their vision, develop their strategy, maybe redesign their processes, um, maybe redesign their culture. But then we work at the point of execution. How do we help you activate that strategy? How do we help you bring that to life in the real world? So we're also working with them to design communications, to design learning programs, to design job aids or tools, um, all the things that are necessary to actually help an organization uh, see that vision and move forward together in alignment to actually achieve it. So we're trying to really knit together the not only the ideation, but how do you bring it to life inside your organization? So what I appreciated is how you got to hear. Why don't you talk a little bit about your prior experiences with Bain and, and, and what you learned in that process, which ultimately helped create a catalyst to, to get to your current organization. Yeah. Well, so I did start my career at Bain uh, as a strategy consultant um, and both there and then also uh, after that working in, in Silicon Valley in a number of, of uh, uh, probably well, well-known software businesses, I really sort of observed some of the same things that have led us to what we're doing right now at Explain. Um, you know, the folks that I worked with, uh, both on the client side, as well as with my, my uh, strategy partners, do really great work, you know, really smart folks, people in the business know their business really well, they have the insights, the consultants that are working at their side, are very smart folks who bring added value. And yet, we know that about 80% of all these strategy efforts fail. And that was infuriating. Um, and it's, it's frustrating to see that happen. It's frustrating to see good work wasted. It's frustrating to see good ideas that, you know, had, um, you know, really excellently conceived ideas that didn't end up seeing daylight because they just never manifest. 
And so while both working um, in, uh, in a company as well as working for companies, I was really starting to think through, why is that happening? Why, what, are we, what are we failing at? And in the last 20 years at Explain, we've really started to study this and we've identified that you know, at the end of the day, we spend a lot of money on strategy. We spend a lot of resources on strategy, but we spend very little investment trying to actually bring it to life. And it really boils down to people. It boils down to, are we doing the right things to help everyone in our organization even to see the future, understand the vision of where we're going? You know, strategy is oftentimes a, a list of to-dos for some organizations, but really we got to paint the vision of where we're headed and why. We need to help engage those employees and bring them along as well and, and make it relevant to them and maybe answer their needs. Um, we also need to, in some cases, make investments because maybe people are on board with this idea, but maybe they don't have the skills to do this next next thing that you're asking of them. So there's sometimes investments that need to be made. And importantly, it's not a one-size-fits-all story, right? You may have five or six or 10 different stakeholder groups, each with a different attitude about this change and each with different needs. So we really have started to think about how do you bring human-centered design into the strategy realm to help activate strategy and overcome some of those failings? So I love it on your website. Look, that you broke the strategy activation playbook. There is a comment here, 160 billion billion with a B is spent each year on basically creating and executing strategies. A lot of that to the large organizations like you work with, with Bain Capital and McKenzie's of the world, et cetera. And I'm, it's so fascinating that, but 80% of that you could argue is wasted, right? Oh, yeah. Because it actually never gets done. So, and, and this has been going on a long time. I mean, if you read the historical, anything over the past 30, 40 years, this has been pretty consistent data. It really hasn't changed much, but you're coming in actually after you're going, working with a lot of Fortune 500 companies, you're coming after they, they get this great idea. So I'm, I'm kind of curious and, and perhaps you could help me. Do they, does Bain or these other large companies, do they go, hey, you know, we think we just finished up this project. Can you help shepherd it in and close it? Or are you reaching out? I'm kind of curious on the marketing end. How, how do you, if you may, find out there's a strategy getting done and it's like, hey, we need to help them make sure it actually gets completed? Well, so by and large, um, most of our work, you know, the field of strategy activation is fairly new. You're starting to see more and more in the press about it. More and more people are realizing that, hey, there is this gap. Um, so happily, those people that are recognizing the need to make that investment are reaching out to us. Also, those organizations we've worked with in the past um, who have seen the successful results um, are reaching out to us. But I think there's also just generally an increasing awareness that the way we used to roll out strategy is a dinosaur. Um, and what I mean by that is you said 30 to 40 years ago, you know, this started to be a real problem. Well, that's, that's, that's actually fairly accurate. Um, I think what's happening is that our business organization, our structures of our organization are shifting pretty dramatically right under our feet. We're seeing that you know, historically, most people that went through business school, just like, like I did, learned change management, if you will, from the perspective of kind of a tops down hierarchical structure, right? Let's cascade this information down to folks. Let's roll this out. Let's generate buy-in, right? And these are all very kind of hierarchical organization mindsets, right? So this is why we still see people uh, standing up, you know, the CEO coming up and sort of presenting that strategy at the town hall meeting, and it's a fire and forget exercise, and then they just assume it's going to happen, right? And what's changed is that in those last 50 years, organizations have changed significantly. So 
organizations aren't tops down and hierarchical. In fact, in the 70s, we started hiring people for their creativity, for their innovation, for their empowerment, because the basis of competition was really built around the idea of how do we innovate? How do we, we do new creative things? And we hired people who have agency to also evaluate your strategy and say, am I on board with this or not? So we have to catch up to the organization we are now. And we have to start to recognize that we can't just roll a strategy out and expect it to get executed. We have to actually share that strategy, ideally co-create that strategy with people, and then start actually bringing them along and engaging them in the process. And then there's work to be done to basically persuade people. And if you will, we talk about it as creating a movement. You have to create a movement among your own employees and stakeholders to get them to want to follow and, and pursue that vision. So I think that awareness is growing. Um, I think it's still, uh, it's still emergent, but we're seeing a lot more people now who are actually open to having this question of, I have a strategy, how might we make sure that it can be successful? You know, historically, I always used to say you never get fired for hiring a Bain or McKenzie, right? You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to hire the smartest people in the world. They're going to help us come up with a strategy. And it's like, then it seems to literally die often, right? You know, like literally go nowhere, or at least at least 80% of them, you know, historically. So we have that part. And, and I loved it when you talked about, I can't tell you how many times I've been in meetings and it was the, the one event town hall, right? Mm -hmm. The CEO says, we're excited. We're doing X, Y, and Z, and we're going to go to the moon. Yep. Right. Yep. And like, literally it's the only time they ever say it. So I'm curious, just, just let's just talk about that one basic principle for just a minute. Because mm -hmm. there's, I remember I was actually uh, going to school and, and a university professor repeated something three times in the class. And he said, and everyone like looked up and they're like, why did he repeat that three times? He said, I know because only a third of you are listening right now. Mm-hmm. I see it three times, most likely, so, you know, all, all of you, if I, the message got to you. When you're coaching about that, what I'd call literal, literal basic communication transfer, mm -hmm. we're trying to help people understand the vision and buy into that. How often, right? How often do we have to share consistently that vision and message to the broader audience? Not only how often and how, but also how tailored. Um, and so one of the things I always try to say to our, our partners is that, um, you know, there is an 80-20 rule of foot, right? So with any change you're launching in your organization, there's probably 20% of the people in the organization that are going to be gung-ho and yay, let's do that, right? But that 20% isn't enough, right? That's still going to give you 80% of the people not on board. There's probably 20% on the other side that are absolutely crossing their arms and saying, I'm not going to do this. It's the flavor of the month. These people don't know what they're doing. And they're going to be recalcitrant about the change. And the, the, the point is the middle 60, that 60 is the group that you need to persuade to get on board. Like that's the group that you need to get to, to raise their hand and say, I'm either in or I'm out, but they're probably gonna sit on the fence until they tip one way or the other. And so that's the group that I, I sort of advise us that we should be working with. And to do that with those folks, what we really need to do is start to understand what are their unique attitudes towards this change. And not just that whole group, but can we break that group down into four groups, five groups, six groups? So I'll give you an example. Classic change management typically advises you create one communication campaign. And even if it's beyond that town hall, even if there's 10 touch points, it's the same 10 touch points to the entire company, right? Mm -hmm. But that company may not have the same attitude towards this change. If we're talking about a, um, uh, may maybe we're talking about uh, a data transformation where we're going to be doing more, you know, sort of self-service customer support stuff, right? This is a conversation a lot of your, your viewers or your listeners are, are involved in right now. Um, 
it might be that the development team is so excited about this because they're going to build really cool new technical aspects to their their mobile experience and their their uh, their um, web experience. It's going to allow um, these 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 customers to to really handle all these these new ways of working. But then the customer support team might be totally terrified by that change because they're just seeing like, oh my god, they're going to automate my jobs, right? So you can't share the same message to those two audiences. Um, you need to get under the hood of how do they feel about it. What do they fear? What are they excited about? And if you do that work, you might discover that the customer service folks just need to understand that we're doing this so that you can even do a higher level of touch with folks. And we're going to invest in you to give you the job training to get there. Right. And so for that group, it's a different communication and it's a, a commitment to, to a learning journey. And that's the biggest, biggest difference right now is we need to be thinking about what's different in our organization. What are the various stakeholder groups we have? What are their unique attitudes and how do we design a change program that's actually tailored to those different stakeholder groups so we can get them all to where they need to get to at the end of the day. That is beautiful and well said. And I think it's clearly a missed attribute, right? Because that's a lot of work, right? To go in and actually learn about what are the real the real bottlenecks? What are the real reason they are not sticking to an idea? What's their real fears and concerns they have on something? So, and uh, let, let me not presume, how are you gaining that information from your clients? You know, how, how are you making sure that you're actually discerning and how you how do you discern that they're actually telling you the truth as well? Yeah. Well, you know, so for, this is where the human-centered design work kind of comes into the business world. And so we've rooted a lot of our ways of working in design research, and and the key thing is if you're gonna if you're gonna be human centered about it, you should go talk to the humans that are impacted. So the first thing is we don't trust. I shouldn't say trust. We don't listen to and default to what the client says is what's going on. We say that might be a great perception, but do we have the whole picture? Can we go talk to those folks? And so what we'll we'll do is we'll identify those stakeholder groups, and then through a number of different design research methods, it may be focus groups, it might be interviews, it might be observation. Um, and it doesn't have to be heavy research. That's the thing people need to understand. It's like even a small amount, 12 focus groups, five focus groups of 20 minutes with you know five people in a group will give you so much information that you didn't have in the boardroom. And it'll also help you surface the barriers to change that might blow your rollout up. It might blow up your strategy, but if you see it in advance, you can mitigate it in advance, you can get ahead of it. So back to that example, if the customer service reps are completely freaked out, your best ones are gonna leave first, right? <laughs> the cost of that is so much higher than, than spending a little bit of investment time to do some research, to ask them what they how they feel about the change when what they would need to get on board and have them tell you, I'm just really worried about my job and I want some training. Great, let's, let's provide that. Now you've got a team that is part of the solution. They're engaged, they're staying embedded. You're keeping your best folks and that hidden cost isn't gonna materialize and you're more likely to actually get there. So the biggest challenge we have is actually convincing our partners to make that investment in research. But if you go out and actually talk to the stakeholders and really get their points of view, we're gonna gather a lot of insights that are gonna make it a much more successful engagement. I think that's a fantastic approach you talk about get just literally, and it doesn't take that long, but it takes, it does take some time, energy and effort to find and ask the right questions, right. To get to the root, true root causes of their concerns that they have. Now, what I'm presuming a lot of this is, this is kind of after the fact, right. This is after the strategy been figured out. 
it's of course best practice. Best practice is if we can get these concerns ahead of time before finalizing the strategy, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're consulting, you have the opportunity to actually work with somebody up front before they finalize their their beautiful binder and the strategy campaign, you know, so to speak, you know, they're getting ready to launch out. How do you get opportunities to do that up front mm-hmm. with, with some of your clients to get to, to get some of those key obstacles that we're going to run into and maybe and find out that our strategy might be a little bit different based on the feedback we're getting from the field? The best strategies are the ones that are co-created, right? And so we don't we don't expect we're going to outsource strategy, you know, in the business world to the entire base of employees, but um, we have a saying that the smartest person in the room is the room. If you can get a group of folks together, um, the insights that that collective audience has are much greater than, than the smartest consultants that could ever come in and advise on strategy. And so the earlier you can involve um, employees in co-creation, two things are going to happen. One, you're going to get better ideas. And secondly, you're also, because they were invited to participate, you're going to get higher levels of engagement and therefore a greater likelihood that they're gonna see their fingerprints on the ultimate solution and participate in it, right? So it's not some plan that was thrown over the wall at them, but it's something that they actually helped design. And so we talked to folks about about employee engagement, engaging employees at lots of different stages. You know, to your first question, if, if the strategy has already been developed, you still have the opportunity to say, okay, let's visualize the strategy, for example. What if we could put together kind of a one-page overview of the strategy and go out and have some listening sessions with our employees and say, here's where we're going, what's resonating for you, what's not resonating for you, what's missing. And you have a couple of group conversations where people actually are heard, you're hearing their feedback, and you are again identifying potentially real gaps and opportunities in your strategy, or maybe potential barriers to change, barriers to to adaptation that if you can get that information early, you can be more successful rolling it out. So that's just one very simple thing that people could do to start to engage folks. At another level down, uh, the other thing is that obviously top level strategies are often kind of cut at 100,000 feet. But at the point of execution, that strategy needs to get interpreted by different functions, different groups in different ways, and they each have a different part to play. So you can also start to engage employees in things like uh, how might me, how might we brainstorm? Like how might we take this strategic pillar we've been assigned and bring this to life in the coming year. What are your best ideas for how we can do that? So we can also engage employees at the level of execution and really getting their ideas in terms of how might we bring it to life. And by doing that, they're both intimately starting to understand and internalize what the strategy is, and they're gonna contribute their own ideas to how to actually realize it. Yeah. So, how long, you know, have you, I know a big part of getting to explain that you, you got to this point of, but from, from the beginning, did you realize that this was a gap, the gap of the execution of being able to understand it deeper and, and what has surprised you, you know, as you went along this journey that you didn't anticipate when you first started? Um, actually, the thing that's always surprised me comes back to the origins of explain, which is that, um, that it often starts by having a unified story, right? And so as human beings, we're storytellers and we've been telling stories all of our life. We've only used written language for about 3000 years and we've only communicated in PowerPoint decks for the last 50, right? And yet every strategy is rolled out as a hundred page PowerPoint deck. So we're not going to absorb that, you know, no matter what your best intentions are, if you roll out that hundred page PowerPoint, people are going to gloss over. And so we, the, 
the company explained actually started off as a um, as a design firm that focused on creating information graphics. We were working um, in the in the late '90s um, during the first dot com boom to actually take value propositions of businesses and try to explain them simply. How do you actually draw a picture of what we do and why and why this is going to change your world, right? And so the discipline of creating that one page story was an incredibly powerful discipline that I think only later we realized that was actually the, one of the biggest missing links. Because if you were to ask, if you were to, after that presentation of that 100 page PowerPoint, if you were to take the top 10 executives in that company, separate them and say, tell me what our strategy is and why we're doing it, you'd hear 10 different stories or 10 different versions of it. So even at that level, if you've got 10 leaders telling 10 slightly different versions of the story, imagine what happens when that trickles down to 60,000 employees. But what if you could get those same 10 people to come together with one common story that's easy to understand and clear to communicate? That's the first starting point. And that's the, and that's the first conversion we need to make is start to create a movement, start to persuade people by doing what we've always done well, which is telling a clear story. So you literally have the Tower of Babel within each respective organization and just the executive leadership team alone. I love that concept yeah, that of yeah. literally trying to get each executive to say the same thing. It's, it's fascinating of a mission statement or vision statement or our core values or key behaviors around that. And if you actually quiz somebody on the spot, how often they won't know it Yeah. or yeah. You know, how often they wonder the story behind why it was created in the first place. Well, and it's it's part of why, like you'll see in the book, um, for those of you that have uh, had the opportunity to read through it or, or will, um, we really anchor on visual thinking a lot because, you know, we've all heard mission statements. We've all heard purpose statements. We've all heard the values and lists and so on and so forth. Um, but words aren't necessarily sufficient because words can be misinterpreted. But when you actually sit down and have to draw a picture, right, just like drawing a business concept out on the back of a napkin. When you draw that out, it actually gives you more information. It gives you more ability for a group to look at it and go, yeah, that's right. No, that's wrong. I don't understand this bit. And when you get those executives together to actually you know, put a picture of the future on the wall for all employees to see, it brings a level of alignment that a paragraph of words could never do. And so it's, um, we encourage um, very simply, you know, with, when we just start working with leaders, we, we, we literally set them down with, with big pieces of paper and, and pens and say, draw us a picture of your vision, draw us a picture of your strategy and have them all share it out and then see where the differences are and where the similarities are and then start to work with them to create a common picture. Because it is kind of like the, the you know, five blind men and the elephant uh, parable, right? Each one of them, the the biz dev team sees it one way and the marketing team sees it another way and the development team sees it another way and the HR office sees it another way. And that's just, that's okay. But now what we need to do is tell a combined version of that picture so that everyone can paint the elephant. What has been, what is still continues to be to you from your perspective, the biggest obstacle in going through in the execution side of getting it done? So meaning making sure that the ideas have been conveyed and there truly is success, right, on the, on the strategy after the fact. So you're getting your clients to use that and to be in that top 20% of successful companies on strategy execution. Yep. Still today, the biggest barrier to doing it is actually investing the time to do the research to figure out where the barriers are. And, and so, you know, putting my design hat on, every, every design leader says, yeah, Clients never want to pay for research. 
<laughs> like, just give me the action plan. What's the rollout plan? What's the communication plan? And the answer is, well, if you don't want us to do the research and if you don't want us to go talk to employees and stakeholders about their wants and needs, you'll probably get a one size fits all solution. And that won't probably be successful. It's probably better than what you were gonna do, but it's not gonna be as successful as if we took two weeks, three weeks, four weeks to go out and actually really understand what makes this company unique. What is it about this stakeholder group that's 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 special? Where is there a gap here that's important to know about? Where are the maybe misperceptions? Because it's just like any journey you're going to take. You know, if you're going to take a long journey, you're probably going to look at some maps. You're going to read some reviews. You're going to do the research so that it's not going to go exactly as planned, but you're going to anticipate some of the pitfalls before you take the trip. And you're probably going to have some backup stuff set up. But a lot of people go blindly into strategy execution <laughs> and they don't do that work. And it, and it costs so little to get such a big return to really understand where are the potential points of failure as we roll this out? And can we mitigate them earlier by doing the work to think about it? It's a part of the, it's a part of the plan that I think almost everyone overlooks. It's common in our culture, especially business culture to move fast, right? Yeah. That's how we're going to be successful, especially where you came from in the, oh, we just had a, all right, we'll get that cleaned up. I just had a, uh, connection there. So I'll make note of this recording. Okay. We'll go back to my, my, my question here. Sorry. I, I literally lost all of the uh, video there for just a moment. So, okay. um, all right. So here we're back in this question I had is you're, you're talking with executives. They have believed they've built out their strategy. They're ready to go. They're like biting. They, they're already feel like they're six months behind. Yep. What wisdom do you help provide to these executives of why it's worth to take the small additional steps to make sure they're gonna get it right. You know, the numbers tell all the story we need. And I, I talk a little bit in the book about building a business case, because to your point, that's, you know, that ultimately is what, what, what business leaders need. They need to see that, okay, I've invested a million dollars in the strategy. You know, McKinsey's bill was, was not insignificant. I've also spent how many millions of dollars of my own resources to do this? And what is the business case for me to delay this yet another two, four, five weeks to actually roll this out? And it really comes back to where we started this conversation. Do you want to be one of the 80% that fails? Or do you want to be part of the 20% that succeeds? And the 20% that succeed, um, there was actually a really interesting McKinsey study just recently. We're just starting to see data about this. They, um, the, the study highlighted that um, in most strategy engagements, only fewer than 2% of um, the employee base is actually engaged in the process of the strategy rollout. Wow. But the tipping point is at least 7%, right? So you think about it, in, in an organization of thousands of people, have you really created a plan that's gonna, that going to actually personally touch at least 7% of the people in your organization or more in the process of activating that strategy. So there's just a huge gap there that can be closed and the math backs it up. And so we've done some calculation. I won't bore folks with math right now, but in the book, we actually put some numbers to it and looking at expected value of an incremental investment of 10 to 20% of what you've already spent to do this has a very, very high likelihood of putting you in that 20% that succeed. I think that's fantastic. What's so fascinating about this is right. Is like, once again, 
spent all the money, you hired the best consultants in the world, you've, you have your best members of your team, your top 2%, right? Working on this to make sure it's going to work. And it still can fail if we don't get the buy-in and engagement from the people. And it's how much important it is to just spend that incremental more to make sure you have success rather than not. So, so like how transparent policy, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The same concept. I'm like, if you pay the small amount for this insurance policy and you can be guaranteed you're going to be successful, would you do it? You know, most people would. Right. Right. So maybe it's simple now, since we've talked about it so many times, but let me just ask you, so how are you measuring success with your client work? Mm -hmm. Well, so I'll answer that in two ways. Um, Explain measures our success in a couple dimensions. We we try to have an outside third-party measurement for each of the things we care most about. So for example, our customer satisfaction, we measure it with net promoter score. So it's a standard that a lot of people understand. We want to make sure that um, we're you know exceeding our clients' expectations. And if we do a good job, you know, they're going to come back, they're going to tell their friends, and it's going to be beneficial for all. So we actually use the MPS measurement uh, for client satisfaction, but in parallel, um, our other key stakeholders, uh, at Explain, we talk about having four stakeholders, um, our customers, our employees, uh, certainly the, the owners and investors, as well as the world. And so for each one of those, we found a, a way to measure that. We are a B Corp. Um, so we use an outside global third-party uh, evaluation to understand, are we actually a a sustainable and uh, conscious uh, organization. Um, we use uh, a uh, employee survey, Great Place to Work survey from the Great Place to Work Institute to do the same thing for our employee satisfaction. And we do all that measurement because we believe that if we don't actually um, make sure that we're balancing those outcomes, we're gonna underserve someone. You know, If we completely solve for making our employees happy, we're probably not gonna be profitable and be able to survive, right? If we completely oversolve for our customer satisfaction, we'll probably burn up our employees. Um, only if we are balancing these things uh, can we can we get it right. And so that's why we're really looking at those, those metrics for all four of those stakeholders and then making decisions to say, how do we keep them harmonious and in balance? Perfect. All right, Eric, I want to flip this over now to the personal side. First of all, I wish... Oh, at, like many times with our guests, we had more time to talk about what you're doing. I strongly encourage everybody to read his book, The Strategy Activation Playbook. Let's talk about your habits. You've built this great business. You started out in Bain, which is one of the top consulting firms in the world. What habits have you learned over the years for yourself to consistently deliver great performance as, as a leader for yourself? This is a continuing journey. <laughs> so I've, I've been trying to probably discover the answer to that question throughout my life. Um, I think ultimately curiosity is the most powerful tool anyone can own. Um, the power of curiosity is the, the power to never get stale and the power to constantly learn and grow. And so um, I try to think about ways to um, live a curious life as much as possible by surrounding myself with, with interesting people people that come from very diverse backgrounds and backgrounds different than my own. Um, I try to surround myself by people that are very successful. Um, I'm married to a CEO and she pushes me every day. Um, I'm just trying to keep up. Um, and I think that curiosity also leads you down some pathways of, um, of 
of listening to podcasts and reading books constantly and exposing yourself to new ideas because those new ideas, not 100% of them are going to be good for you, but the ones that you see that you implement and put to work um, will maybe surprise you with new outcomes that you never achieved before. At a personal level, I've also found two things to be very powerful. Um, one is I've, I've taken up a practice of meditation. Um, one of the cha biggest challenges as a leader is just spending an incredible amount of time trying to do 100 things at once. And just to quiet your mind and give yourself the gift of being able to take the time to just carve out some time that's just for you and focus on listening to your inner voice, listening to your inner growth, quieting your mind. Um, it's remarkable how the clarity that will come the next day will help you see of these hundred things, which one or two are the most important to do. So I encourage people to take that time for themselves because it's really easy just to run fast. But if you run fast, you might oftentimes run into a wall. I think that's great advice uh, on, on both both of those accords. And, and, and you also have a family as well. You have a couple of kids. So not only are you dealing with the challenge of your own business, your wife has her business, as you just mentioned, and then internally uh, you have the uh, joy, right? The, the privilege that we get to have as, as raising children. So you are clearly, I, once again, if you, those who are watching on YouTube, you'll see they're big music fans. We have back here a bunch of um, basically records that they have behind the old, the old fashioned kind for those who are, are used to that. Um, I, I'm curious from your perspective, what is a book that really has inspired you that you would like to share with others that, that they really should read? Oh, wow. Um, uh, it's, it's like, what's your favorite grain of sand, right? But <laughs> there are so many amazing books in the world. I guess I would point uh, behind my head, there's a whole stack above our design books. There's a bunch of books over here on personal growth. There's some business and strategy books. Um, there's a lot of interesting uh, sort of broad nonfiction topics. But the one that I oftentimes probably find myself fingering through every once in a while again um, is one that maybe is conceptually impactful to me, which was... Um, uh, a book by a man named uh, Don Norman um, called The Design of Everyday Things. And it's a design book, uh, inherently. It's, uh, it's really about uh, rooted in industrial design. Um, but what I loved about it was sort of extending that to the idea of designing your life. And that even the simplest thing, the, you know, the, the cup that you hold in your hand, the pen or pencil you choose to work with, should be something that actually provides both beauty and solves a problem in a really innovative way. And it doesn't have to be big D design and be flashy and beautiful. It can be the small little things and even sometimes their imperfections that can really add value to your life. So I oftentimes think of that book um, as an inspiration to you know, try to make things as simple as possible, but no simpler and really design your life and design your everyday interactions to maximize your ability to make an impact. Good. Well said. I appreciate the book recommendation. That is a, I believe that's a first on here. So thank you for that. I always love it when we get some new ones. Um, not to say that the ones are repeated aren't great, if that makes sense, but that is that. And I also appreciate that because that's along your expertise, right? That's, that's along a lot of the concepts you talk about design. And I also love that concept to talk about staying curious. Uh, I think that's, that is an important aspect of what we should have in life. Eric, how can people reach out and learn more about with you or connect with you? Oh, thank you. Um, 
So find me on LinkedIn. Uh, it's Eric Wood with an A, A-R-I-C, Wood. Um, also, um, I'm happy to have people reach out to me directly uh, at, uh, at Explain. Uh, my email address is uh, awood at explain.com, X-P-L-A-N-E.com. So catch me either one of those ways. I, I always love to have conversations on these topics. Perfect. Eric, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you a guest on the Measure Success podcast today. Thank you, Carl. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the conversation. And to everyone else who's listening, I encourage you once again to reach out to Eric or at a minimum, uh, pick up his book, The Strategy Activation Playbook. Uh, it is, once again, this is a classic on a concept of we have these great ideas and they don't get done because we're not finishing the job that we need to do to really connect, connect that buy-in, create that buy-in that you need to finalize it. And I think his, his work is genius. Uh, and it's a continuously evolving concept that, that we have to help make sure, once again, these great ideas actually come to fruition. So with that, uh, thank you so much to all our guests to listening, and we wish you the very best at measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.